democracy was not just a government which empowered the, as I said, the irrational multitude. It was also a government which would accept sexual normativity, would upset gender relations, would uh, turn upside down the world of patriarchy. So, you see, it's much more than just a dangerous, perilous form of government. It's something which really would create, according to hysteric, no doubt, reactions by the establishment, establishment would create a cataclysmic uh, change in the way in which England uh, was run. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Monika Wolczynska and I'm a master's student at the University of St Andrews. Today I'm joined by Cesare Kutika. Cesare is a lecturer in British history at Paris 8th University and his research interests include early modern political thought and the methodology of intellectual history. At the end of the last month, in May 2022, Cesare published a new book with Oxford University Press entitled Anti-Democracy in England, 1570-1642, and we will be talking about it today. So hello, Cesare, it's great to speak with you again. Hello, Monica. Hi, thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, it's wonderful. Last time we spoke was in January, and uh, now we have this uh, another book to discuss. So I'm wondering if you can outline the structure in brief and give us a sense of the main argument of the book, just so we have the introduction of the ideas. Yes. Um, well, I've got the, the actual um, uh, paper copy in front of me, they are, they are uh, back here. And um, the cover, I think, is quite indicative because it's a, it's a painting from Guercino from the early 17th century, where you have Hercules uh, trying to tame, you know, the uh, Hydra, uh, the uh, monster. And in fact, the many-headed monster is a little bit the focus of this book in the sense that um, this book depicts uh, in a period, uh, in a 70-year uh, period, 1570, 1642, in England, mostly in England, the way in which the many-headed multitude was attacked and criticised and, uh, and hated, in a way, for being uh, uh, dangerously, uh, um, uh, uh, being dangerously, uh, uh, dangerous societally, in terms of society, in terms of politics. Um, uh, now, the, the cover shows how the fear of the multitudes was prevalent at this time. And so my book is a way of uh, saying, um, well, nowadays we hear an awful lot about uh, democracy in crisis, fake news, populism, and I think there was a lot of um, conceptual uh, unclarity about, about this terminology. And so I uh, wanted to look at how the early modern periods uh, thought about uh, democracy and to do so not just by traditionally uh, looking at the usual suspects of the canon of political theory, but also uh, by looking at um, a, a much more variegated spectrum of characters, uh, clergymen, uh, poets, kings. And, and so I discovered that um, democracy of course, democracy did not exist, certainly not as we imagine it or as we think of it nowadays at that time. But 
an awful lot of people talked about it. Uh, so in a way, my book is about something that did not exist. And mm-hmm. yet it was very, very prevalent in the debates and the public debates of the time. So the time I'm talking about goes roughly from the uh, second part of or the, the century and the second part of the uh, Elizabethan reign up to the civil wars. These are two important, chronologically, historically speaking, two important junctures because uh, they correspond with the uh, to the solidification or consolidation of absolutism and episcopacy and with the explosion of the civil wars. Um, so this is, uh, uh, in a nutshell, what, what I, I try to do, uh, especially because um, you know, we think we think we know what democracy is and what it's all about, but actually, democracy as we think it as we think of it nowadays in terms of liberal democracy, is not at all uh, you know representative government, uh, rights of the individual, uh, gender equality, freedom of speech. It's not at all how democracy was perceived in the early modern period. Democracy then corresponded to something quite different um, in the sense that equality was a key term to the extent that democracy was uh, equal, uh, equated with the idea of abolishing private property, for instance. Um, Also, democracy had something uh, much more uh, to do with religion and the idea of parity. Uh, We'll return to this in a minute. And democracy was also associated with practices that nowadays are completely obsolete, i.e. the practicing of electing of nominating people to political uh, uh, tasks or roles by lot, with the lottery system. Election, which we associate democracy with now, was actually, as per the Aristotelian uh, take on things, was um, seen as um, uh, associated with aristocratic government. And the other thing was the practice of ostracism, in, uh, which correspond to the banning of somebody who had become too powerful within a democracy, um, and to ban him uh, from a pe- for a period of, of at least a year in order to make sure that a the right balance uh, uh, of powers was kept in a democracy. So democracy really did not mean what we think of democracy nowadays. The final thing I'd like to say is that in this book, I try to reevaluate the role of, as I said, of religion, but also of culture, um, of prejudices, of concerns, uh, of societal tendencies when describing democracy. And this is because democracy was not just a form of government, but it was a way of life. It was a type for being a way of life whose consequences are not just politics, but also religion, the economic sphere, the intellectual sphere, and the moral uh, uh, arena were incredibly important. Now, what I have not said, and then I, I, I stop, is um, why was this so? Um, in other terms, why uh, democracy was considered to be such a bugbear, uh, a bogeyman, if you like, of early modern reflection? Well, because uh, people made a distinction which nowadays I think is lost. And that distinction is crucial to understand what I'm talking about here. And it's, it's the distinction between the multitude, hence my initial statement about the cover of the book, the many-headed multitude and the people. Nowadays, we consider democracy to be the government where the people are in charge. Well, the people and the multitude are not the same in the early modern period. The people are still a rather elitist, selected group of well-educated, 
men, of course, householders with property uh, who are virtuous and who are educated and hence capable of running the public will. The multitude is none of these things. The multitude is chaotic, is garrulous, it talks about too much, it gossips, is irrational, is passionate, and is formed by what in uh, early modern English terminology was uh, said to be a mechanical people, people who use their hands in their daily uh, life and hence were uncouth, uneducated, and therefore they should not go any near politics. What a fantastic introduction. Thank you so much for that. Uh, it brought to mind many, many questions, uh, but I'll try to stay structured. So uh, at the beginning, you mentioned that uh, firstly, well, democracy is not what we understand now. And in fact, it didn't exist at the time, but it was really talked about. So is this, let's say, the starting point, the inspiration of the idea of the book, or can you tell us what specifically led you to write it? Yes, it's a very good question. Um, uh, now, uh, to start with, uh, I should say that um, when it comes to the early modern period, there is, a, they, there is a huge gap in the study of democracy. So in other terms, the history of democracy seemed to be, in the, in the West, of course, seemed to be going as follows. Uh, or at least the narrative that has been uh, given to us by the uh, historiographical mainstream. There is democracy in ancient Greece, a little bit in the Roman Republic, then it kind of disappears. Some of it re-emerges in the 1640s, so just after the end of my book, with the uh, uh, English Civil War, in particular the levelers. And then there's another big jump uh, uh, to the uh, second half of the 18th century with, of course, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And then you have an awful lot about democracy. But there's a big gap there. So that was the first thing that made me curious. How come uh, uh, historians don't talk much about uh, democracy at this time? And, I, and I'm going to return to this in a second. So what made me curious was, although democracy did not exist, however, it did exist in some respects in at least three places in the Ottoman period. Curious, curiously enough, in Switzerland, in the Swiss cantons, or in some of them anyway. Uh, democracy was also associated with the Anabaptist experiment of the 1530s in Germany. So some of the Anabaptist radical uh, Anabaptist communities set up forms of government, of um, a, a managing of the household, which um, uh, resemble uh, communist, you know, to use an anachronistic term, practices of goods sharing, of abolition of private property, which was considered to be democratic. And the third uh, uh, example is the Parisian League of the 1580s, 1590s, which uh, was identified with a, a, an enclave of or, or an experimental moment for democracy. But aside of these three, uh, 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 and a little bit the, the later on in the 17th century with the North American colonies, aside of these uh, few odd oddities, a few geographical oddities, Democracy did not exist. And yet, as I said, everyone seemed to be obsessed with it. Everyone feared it. Everyone talked about it. And, um, and when I say everyone, I say a very uh, large spectrum of uh, uh, people with, uh, belonging to different social backgrounds, professions, religions. They all seemed to know what democracy was, although they said different things. They target different people or groups. And they really feared it because democracy was not just 
a government which empowered the, as I said, the irrational multitude, the plebeian hordes, but it was also a government which would accept sexual normativity, would upset gender relations, would uh, turn upside down the world of patriarchy. So you see, it's much more than just a dangerous, perilous form of government. It's something which really would create, according to hysteric, no doubt, reactions by the establishment, establishment will create a cataclysmic uh, change in the way in which England uh, was run. It would um, diminish the, the two powerhouses, uh, uh, the political powerhouse of the king and the political powerhouse of, of the bishop by installing uh, uh, people who until then had no voice at all in the public arena to roles or responsibilities. And this was absolutely uh, deleterious. Now, um, last thing I want to say is what attracted me to, to uh, uh, write this book, which was no easy task in a way, partly because my previous book was uh, uh, about one character, Sir Robert Filmer. Here I had to engage with a variety of different sources, sources often not considered in the historiography, so public documents, uh, uh, sermons, poems, and I had to engage with an awful lot of so-called minor figures, many times losers as well. Um, and yet, what was fascinating was that when you look at the historiography, especially the historiography of uh, early modern England, but the historiography of the, of the history of democracy in general, there are mainly three takes. And some colleagues might say, oh, uh, uh, you know, Kutika shouted from the rooftop that he's done the, you know, things in a completely different way. Well, um, here we go. Um, one, one option is to say, look, there was no democracy, hence it's absolutely a worth, an, unworthy, an unworth topic, uh, it, it, it's unworth talking about this topic. Uh, within this perspective, there's also the, okay, well, if you talk about democracy, then you have to, to say that it was simply criticised. But Historians have not asked why was it criticised, how was it was criticised, uh, you know, did, did people criticise according to different in different ways? Uh, uh, what kind of tradition they, did they rely on in order to criticise it? So that's the first thing. Second approach is to is what I call the anachronistic approach, which is to say, uh, yes, in the early modern period there were a few characters who anticipated our modern liberal ideal democracy. However, they did not at all. They would have simply not recognized the idea of being Democrats. They would have actually recoiled in horror at the idea of being called Democrats. Now, why you, you say, but why do they, so historians are not, why do some historians, they say that? Well, it's because they, there is the tendency to identify for theories such as the theory of resistance or the idea that the people originally uh, uh, held power as uh, signs that a thinker might be a Democrat. Not at all. You might think that the origins of power are in the people, but it doesn't mean that you then allow the people to have power, to wield power once government is constituted. You can believe in popular sovereignty as a theorist without believing in democracy. Um, monarchists believed in popular sovereignty. You know, a popular sovereignty is one component, for instance, of a mixed government. But there is a, comp is a completely different game to say that the multitude should be in charge of democracy. So that's the 
the second uh, point. The third, uh, which is the most serious, the most, I suppose, uh, uh, brilliant of these uh, uh, three historiographical perspectives, is more recent and is the one that uh, says, well, maybe there was no democracy in uh, the early modern period, but there was certainly uh, um, there was certainly a wave of democratization uh, due to the uh, expansion of the public sphere and public opinion. This is all good. However, I think that uh, they concentrate mainly on the revolutionary period and they exclude the pre-revolutionary era as much more fundamental, as much more pregnant with decisive ideas in terms of the history of democracy and anti-democracy. Wow. So the sense I get is that this was an enormous task to complete this, uh, this piece of work and to include these varied sources, which is not typically done at the moment. And I want to return to one, well, many points, but to start with one point, which might be quite surprising to 21st century readers and this notion that democracy was identified that as a thing that could be catastrophic for the state and the church. Please, can you elaborate on this? In what ways was this perceived and where did it come from? Yes, well, um, it's again an excellent uh, uh, question. Uh, and I start with the last part of it, which is where, where did it come from? Well, obviously the uh, classical, especially uh, ancient Greek legacy is fundamental. So uh, I have a part in the introduction and these are things which are scattered throughout the book about um, the importance of Plato, Aristotle, and also the so-called uh, pseudo-Aristotle, or, or otherwise called the old, uh, old uh, oligarch. Uh, the importance of these thinkers and their ideas in influencing, in affecting the way in which early modern English men and European men, uh, and I say men because women obviously had a marginal role in this story. Although when I say marginal, marginal, marginal in, in terms of being active, but women had a role in the sense that they were democracy was considered to empower women, especially through the religious sects, which were then starting to proliferate. So there is also this, you know, scaremongering perhaps attitude, but women are, have something to, to, to do with it. And so the, the, the classical legacy is very important in that sense. Um, the other big origin here, or the other big uh, link to uh, relate to your question is Puritanism, of course, in the sense that, um, Puritanism was uh, uh, considered to have allowed uh, people who were not well educated to read, uh, uh, to learn to read, and hence read the Bible and to create what was defined as the priesthood of all believers. So, in other terms, Puritanism was accused of uh, giving a voice in religious and ecclesiastical and doctrinal matters to people who should not have it. Um, the, so these are two main, you know, the classical context and the religious uh, uh, aspect. Now, um, why was democracy considered to be so catastrophic for society? Well, because <laughs> we have to remember that this is, was not, as it's a banal to say so, but not only this was a patriarchal and hierarchical society, but it was also society dominated by uh, 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 the monarchical apparatus of not just power, but also of symbolism. English and European society at this time, also thanks to the importance of the court, was uh, dominated by the royalty, 
by royal symbols, by pageants, by masks, by the incredibly powerful propaganda machine developed and, and diffused and spread for the arts, for instance, which came from, uh, in, the in, in the case that I'm, I'm looking at, for instance, by, by the Stuart uh, court. And so the monarchy had the, uh, uh, the, the power of uh, uh, sending out a very strong message to the people. We are the divinely elected, the divinely appointed lieutenants on earth, uh, uh, God's lieutenant on earth, and hence you should ob obey us. Democracy turn upside down this idea because it kind of uh, uh, completely altered one's station in society by saying, no, you can have a say in your local parish, in your local uh, uh, congregation, in your local community, or you can have a say uh, 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 when it comes to local elections. You can have a say by petitioning parliament. Uh, you can have a say by, this is another big thing, related to what I said earlier about fake news. and They weren't called fake news, but they were called rumours and libels. You can have a say by spreading uh, rumours and libels about politicians, about what's going on in the public arena. Um, uh, cheap publications were uh, often targeted as a key uh, uh, medium uh, or key means of uh, with which to spread democratic ideas. So democracy was this kind of tentacular, in a way, uh, a, a, a scary monster, which um, was pervasive at a plurality of levels um, in, in society. To give you another example, um, democracy was associated with noise, with a cacophony coming from the multitude. So related, obviously, to the uh, protest uh, dimension, especially in London, you know, the urban centres were considered to be cradles of the perilous cradles of democracy, because in cities, you have all sorts of dodgy people gathering and talking about lots of different things. And that creates, uh, you know, since the idea that there is a threat, almost like a fifth column going on. So democracy is associated with noise, which incidentally, because as of January 22, the British government is trying to ban uh, uh, protests and based on uh, their cacophonous uh, uh, noise. And this is something that happened also in the early modern period with the, with the attempt of banning procession and as the assemblies, uh, the loitering on of, um, of uh, people. So democracy was considered in that sense a major, major threat um, to the way in which society, European English society, uh, uh, was kept uh, together. Finally, democracy was often, uh, if, if you found somebody who was more lenient towards it, he would say democracy only works in small territories and for a short period of time. England is a big, it's got big territorial size and we can't afford to have something which lasts only for a limited period of time. Mm, fantastic. It's very unnatural for for us to think about democracy this way. So this brings out so many refreshing ideas and ways of thinking about this, that democracy at a time could be so threatening and could be such a, um, an idea for tension, for social tension. Absolutely. It was considered to be the worst scenario. Yeah. <laughs> worst, <laughs> than is, yeah. worst than tyranny. 
I see. Wow, so. it's uh, an incredible, incredible uh, pleasure in a way to return to this this time, this period, and to view it in this way for what it was at the time. And um, I want to ask you about chapter four, which is democracy's foreign models, Athens, Switzerland, and Münster, which is you've mentioned this already a little bit. And it deals with democratic models for England. So what was the shape and the character of these models? And also to what extent were they implemented in England? Were they models for England? Um, yes, uh, this is one of my uh, favorite uh, favorite chapters uh, in a way because it shows that the book, although has England in the cover, is not just about uh, England, and it probably shows my uh, tourist guide like uh, tendency. You know, sounds like promoting these three places. Well, it's fascinating because um, uh, these were considered to be. Um, hotbeds of uh, revolutionary democracy. Uh, they had all the characteristics. If you think about Switzerland, it was a um, small entity in the bank in the middle of Europe, but geographically peculiar because it's surrounded by mountains. Uh, its people were considered to be rustic mountainous uh, uh, characters uh, who were also bizarre. So for instance, to give you a, a, one of my uh, favorite examples, the problem with Switzerland um, as a democracy was not just political or religious, but uh, lots of English commentators would say, look, look at the Swiss. The reason why um, they are so bloody gloomy is because they, they don't have fun and they don't have fun because they don't go hunting and they don't play games because they are Democrats. So democracy also was connected to, uh, 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 you know, was kind of identified with the antithesis of good fun that you can have in a court. Um, so, uh, or democracy was considered to be very cruel. The Swiss were accused of having slaughtered their nobles before setting up a democracy. There is also the example of a, a, a son uh, who commits um, a crime and um, the Swiss decide to punish not only the son, but also the father, because that, uh, uh, that son's crime uh, uh, showed that the father had deeply failed in his, in, in his education. And that was used by English commentators to show that a democracy is cruel. A democracy has no heart. It doesn't forgive. Um, and the other thing that Swiss democracy and also Münster, so Münster is the one of the key centers of the Anabaptist experiment and experience of the 16th century. Um, the other two things to, to be said about these foreign models, according to obviously bias and, and polemical, the bias and polemical views of, of many English commentators uh, were these two things. Uh, Democrats were uh, against culture. So look at Switzerland, they would say, with the exception of Basel, there are no universities. They send the intellectual packing, they hate culture, they destroy archives as they did in Münster. This is something that happened, uh, the Anabaptists consider uh, in a way um, archives as the preserve of oppressive uh, uh, hierarchies. And the other thing they, the English commentators, anti-democratic English commentators would say is, as to do with sex, uh, sexual practices uh, as they were carried out uh, in uh, Münster, for instance, um, uh, show that if you allow people to be, to set up a democracy, you're going to have problems in the moral sexual sphere as well. So you're going to have promiscuity, you're going to have misbehaving, 
uh, uh, which is going to threaten uh, society. In the case of Athens, uh, obviously, uh, because of, as I said already, classical sources are, are key and fundamental, uh, Athens was especially attacked as a model because of ostracism. So this idea that, again, democracy is very cruel, it bans people when they uh, are, technically, when they became too powerful, but, but the accusation was Democrats can't stand people who are too smart, and so they and too virtuous. So they ban Democrats, uh, uh, Athenian styles. And the, the interesting thing is that uh, anti-democratic English commentators use contemporary, contemporaneous to them examples as well. Lucca in Italy, it was actually a republic, which was uh, which was actually a republic, was taken as an example where this practice of ostracism, Syracuse was another one, was uh, um, used to uh, ban uh, virtuous people, with the consequence that good, skillful uh, 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 people would not go into politics. So the idea was democracy is a, is a government, is a regime which uh, uh, installs, which, which sets up uh, um, incapable, uh, um, uh, uh, mediocre uh, people. Um, but these foreign models are, are key. They, and, they, mm -hmm. and obviously, the foreign models serve the purpose of criticizing internal adversaries in England. So they are basically, Geneva is one of the places, you know, Calvinist Geneva is one of the places which is considered to be another cradle of democracy. So the anti democrats are saying, look, you want to install Geneva like democracy, Geneva like parity in ecclesiastical, i.e., church and in political the state affairs in England. And this is going to be catastrophic. So the, the foreign models were a kind of mirror image, you know, served as a prisms for which to attack internal um, at the, uh, internal targets. I should have mentioned the Jesuits were also targeted um, as, as proto-democrats, which is obviously not, not true, but they had certain ideas which led some people uh, uh, again, in a biased, hysteric manners, often uh, to accuse them of being uh, promoters of democracy. Mm, I see. So all of these models were, in fact, just used as arsenal of examples and evidence of why democracy is wrong, why it's going to turn the world upside down in the worst possible way. Yes, and we should not do that. Yeah. We should not imitate them. Yes, or otherwise we will be immoral and uh, we will not have fun. We will not go hunting, for instance. No, exactly. exactly as you said. Exactly. Okay, and so we're now touching upon some religious aspects. You mentioned um, uh, Calvinist uh, Geneva. So I want, I see that you've approached this history of political thought, but embracing it in the cultural and religious perspective. So was this part of your methodology and why did you choose this perspective to, to be included in your work? Yes, uh, I, I, I have to confess I'm going to be slightly too polemical here. Now, I uh, uh, am, nobody's perfect, I suppose, a, a, by training an intellectual historian and in particular an historian of political ideas. But um, working on this book, I realized that uh, still too much uh, history of political thought is conducted uh, according to a two-pronged um, uh, perspective or, or approach. And one is to exclude religion uh, from um, the study of political ideas, which is rather 
insane, if you, if you allow me the word, uh, uh, when it comes to the early modern period, because the two realms, again, it's a very banal thing to say, were intertwined, completely, strictly intertwined, interwoven. The second uh, is that aspect is that there is a still a very much tendency uh, to work on the usual suspects, as I said early on, on, on some canonical uh, uh, figures, uh, whether it's Hobbes or Locke uh, or Adam Smith. And I wanted to do something else. I wanted to work on people who were closer to a certain extent to the pulse of uh, 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 political, religious, ecclesiastical uh, life. So these were two ma uh, major, uh, uh, mythologically speaking, motivating, motivating factors in my in my choice and when i say to reevaluate the role of religion and cultural aspects is what i mean is that the attack on democracy was also an attack on the which by the way the attack on democracy was an attack on the democracy as a form of government, but it was an attack on homo-democraticals in a way. The attack on the psyche, if you like, on the psychology of democratic men. And this attack obviously um, uh, took place by being addressed to the leaders of democracy or the, or the alleged leaders often cast as demagogues. So demagogy, uh, demagogy is, is a very important trait of democracy. The attack also uh, um, singled out the inhabitants of democracy. So their religious behavior, their moral behavior, again, you know, things which are not strictly political, political only. And the third category was also the alleged supporters of democracy. So now this overarching encompassing way of attacking the democracy uh, had to do with what I called a way of life. And to give you an example, and this has to do with the cultural perhaps sphere, democracy, democracies were accused since uh, the um, uh, classical times of being governments which promoted the quote, uh, live as you like, end of quote, uh, way. Uh, of doing things. So in other terms, where uh, very much places uh, where you could do what you want. Religiously, that translated as using your conscience to think about religious matters, ecclesiastical affairs. And that was considered to be extremely uh, um, dangerous. And you see it at the beginning of the book, uh, the first chapter is about the uh, um, establishment, so people like Whitgift and Brancroft and Richard Cousin attacking Presbyterians like Thomas Cartwright, I, who were identified as proto-democrats precisely because their idea of the congregation, their idea of how a church should be run, the elders uh, and the, the, the people having a, a voice in it, was different from the uh, Church of England statutory um, hierarchical Church of England uh, uh, way. And so uh, uh, that so that's why I say religion and 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 and, um, and culture are fundamental in that sense. Um, if you go further in, in the book, in especially chapter six, then you have attacks on the independence and on the Scottish covenanters. 
I should say, actually, uh, especially because you are from St Andrews, that although the book has England in the title, this is by no means a kind of English-centric book because there's quite a lot about Scotland as well mm. and Scottish uh, uh, thinkers, and, and, and especially the last part of the book uh, has uh, it covers an awful lot which has to do with which took place in in um, in uh, Scotland. And one last thing about culture is also the fact that um, you know this book is about images, is about definitions, is about impression and, and perception of what democracy was. And culturally, uh, the idea is that um, democracy would also um, let's say, create a new way of speaking, will create almost like a new language. In, in a way, it would defy the statutory, canonical, hierarchical, established way of speaking. It would create something, to use a fancy word, demotic. It, was, it would promote demotic language, the language of the people, the vulgar. And hence the idea, as I, which I recalled earlier, the idea of noise. So culturally as well, democracy is important because, or, or the language of anti-democracy is important because it shows that democracy would alter the traditional paradigms of interaction, uh, of societal intercourse between people by changing the language. And gossip, again, fake news nowadays, would be a serious menace to those authorities which indeed control what could be said and what could not be said. Mm. One point that you made, which I think is quite striking, that democracy at the time, it was not only undermined as a system of governance, but it was the psyche that was related. And that was the threat. And that was the threat, particularly for the church, if people were able to to think more for themselves, let's say, rather than to be influenced by um, the dogma of the church, let's say. Uh, 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 absolutely, absolutely. It, it, now, don't get me wrong, this, this is not to exclude the very valuable uh, historiography uh, on the early modern, on early, mo on early modern popular politics at all. And here I have we don't have the time to cover this. I have maybe the most polemical parts of my book in the introduction, which says fundamentally two things. There's been for far too long the tendency to just oppose republicanism and democracy. They are not the same. Republicanism, mm -hmm. as I read it, was elitist, Ciceronian, uh, formed of or focused on virtues, armed, educated, male, household, you know, male uh, uh, civic figures, democracy was plebeian par excellence. And the second is that I, I, I have a go, and I'm sure people will have a go at me back, um, and those historians who have, although brilliantly so, insisted too much on or have made too much of the idea that England was a sort of monarchical republic formed of civic entities which promoted a form of democracy. I don't buy that. Uh, because I, as I said, I repeat, democracy was very much the uh, bugbear of, 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 it was a dirty word. It was dirty. Nobody wanted to be called a Democrat. It was a smear. It, yeah. it, it was a really dirty word. It was dirty for different reasons, in different ways at different times. No, but, but it was not something that one would take lightly. Things 
ash and then I, 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 I stop. Do begin to change in the late 1640s when democracy begins to be more associated, to become more associated with the ideal representation, so in a way closer to us, uh, and with the ideal parliamentary uh, um, and, and, and the role of the parliament. And hence, uh, uh, you know, we have a, an increasing number of people who do consider democracy under a more positive light. But that does not mean direct democracy. It means representative democracy, which is interesting in terms of the legacy of, of these ideas, because it shows how the history of democracy, and this I'm saying big thing, people say, oh my God, but the history of Western democracy is actually the chronicle or a narrative of what I call the started extension of, uh, uh, of uh, rights and uh, the right to vote, for instance, to a gradually increasing number of people who are considered to be suitable because rational, because virtuous, because uh, 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 sufficiently, economically sufficiently independent people. But again, the multitude is still considered, again, going back to the, to the cover, a many-headed uh, uh, monster and hence uh, what, something which is very scary. Mm -hmm. I see. I see how um, the connections you're making, it's, it's incredibly interesting. And we did speak about anti-democracy already in January, the two of us. Uh, it was between the period of 1603 and 1689. And how does this relate to your latest release and also on the whole to your previous research and your work in general? Yes, well, um, obviously the two projects are, are related. Um, you know, when you when you start uh, to, to work on the monograph, uh, you need to talk to other people. You need to hear what they uh, um, uh, think about your own project. And the best way of, of, of trying to, to make them do that and maybe to do it in a more uh, gentle way is by inviting them to a conference, which I was lucky enough, thanks to, as I say in the acknowledgement, to various institutions which um, helped me to organise this conference. And anyway, so a group of people, uh, especially uh, UK and United States based scholars, came to present their papers, again, from different perspectives. So uh, that work was uh, had um, uh, chapters on democracy and women, democracy and poetry. Um, and again, to, to, to look at the uh, century, uh, the 17th century, also after the period that I deal with the 1640s. I mean, I, I do say something about the civil war and later, and, you know, especially this chapter six and the conclusion, do say how my, my own narrative, my own take uh, on democracy links up to the rest of democracy. But a key person in, in this um, enterprise was my uh, dear friend and colleague Marco Peltonen from the University of Helsinki, who has just finished himself a book on democracy in uh, between 1649 and 1653, if I'm not mistaken, so a much shorter period of time. And, and our two books link up together very well because I stop where he starts and he shows how uh, a democracy became to be in in those few years became much more positively appreciated. So, so this was in a way. So my book, it won't long to cut the story short. Uh, my book was part of a, a network of uh, colleagues and interest, a renewed interest in 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 democracy. And this is actually the last thing of it. The academics are 
I suppose say it was a kind of fashionistas in a way, in the sense that they they start working on something. You know, for, for years we had uh, an awful lot of work on republicanism. Everyone was working on, including myself, you know, on republican ideas, republican practices. Now there's been an explosion of, and I'm one of the people who contributed to this explosion, I suppose, of, of work on democracy. It's much more interesting in democracy, even if it did not really exist, even if it's different from, but we need to go to the, to avoid this jumping that I mentioned earlier and cut off the early modern period, because after all, the early modern period is so much more important long-term in in vis-a-vis uh, -vis the history of democracy that has been said. And not and when I say the early modern period, I'm saying that I don't mean just the levelers that who have been amply studied, but I also mean people whose names might not stay with us, although James the King James I was a very important figure in my narrative. Jesuits uh, like Parsons or, or, or Puritans like Buchanan are very, very important. Again, another Scotland based um, thinker. So that is, uh, in a nutshell, uh, what, what the, this network, how this connected to my research. How is it previous? How is it going to connect to the next one? I'm not entirely sure. I think it's quite daunting uh, to think that I will ever be able to write anything at all about it. But just to give you an example, I've been writing something about the idea that um, democracy is vicious. So the vices of democracy, how um, the, the again, going back to your point about the psyche of a democratic men, how the uh, faulty psyche and the exciting and the faulty uh, morality of democratic men uh, affects, uh, badly affects um, the uh, uh, democratic regime. And when this idea starts to change, and I single out the American pragmatist philosopher John Dewey um, as one of the people who contributed to change, of, on, 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 in fact, to turn this argument on his head by saying that actually democracy is the best form of government and the safest one, precisely because the people are ethically sound and good. But that is something that he does say in the 1880s. So okay. it's quite a long time. There. So that's something I've been trying to embark upon. Okay, and I have to ask one more question that you touched upon right at the start of uh, our discussion. And that's about the sources that you used and a bit about the methodology, because uh, you say that you used quite varied sources. Uh, it sounds like they must have been quite difficult to examine. So just a word on that, please. Yes, well, that's uh, yes, that was a challenge because, you know, we, we all used to work on certain sources. And when you explore new territory uh, is always a, a challenge uh, which involves the risk of getting it wrong. Um, so, yes, I did work on official documents, for instance, proclamations uh, uh, issued by the government. I did work on lots of sermons, um, cheap publications, some letters, although my, my book is mainly about public and hence printed sources, well, not necessarily hence, but, you know, public and printed sources, I did work on some manuscripts, ambassadorial reports. So, for instance, there are parts in the book which show how French and Venetian ambassadors in London were worried about, curiously for in the Venetian case, because they were accused of being a democracy, even if Venice was a republic. But anyway, um, worrying about what was going on at some stages in, in, in England and writing back home saying, well, the Puritans want to, to uh, set up a democracy. Things are going to the dogs. Uh, this is all very dangerous, very scary. So uh, different kind of, uh, kind of uh, sources in that sense. Some poems 
And uh, so, yeah, it was indeed a, a, a real uh, challenge. And the other challenge was the fact that lots of the people I worked on are not very well known. So I had to do quite a bit of um, biographical digging in who they, who the heck they, they were mm -hmm. and tried to say something, uh, um, you know, contextually, contextually important. So in order to throw them in the uh, heated controversies that they were involved in at the time. Hence again, the idea that uh, the arguments presented in this book are responses, movable answers to the issues of the days and not just intertextual conversations. Right. Okay. Uh, it's uh, fantastic. And I, I have to move on to my last and final question, although this discussion has been completely rich and, and exciting. And, uh, and that is, you, you've just published uh, last month, but I, I do have to ask about your future plans, whether this is a basis for the next step. Uh, are you thinking of your next idea or it's time for maybe a, a holiday <laughs> after this yes. enormous project? Yes. Well, I, I fear that maybe some of the reviewers of the book might say critical might should take a long, a permanent holiday from academia and scholarship. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's completely <laughs> uh, 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 tosh. But um, well, I'm toying with um, exploring various uh, trajectory. But one thing that uh, has interested me, and I'm actually give, going to give a paper in, in at the University of Göttingen next week about this, is uh, at the uh, tyrannical aspect of democracy or the tyrannical aspects features of democracy. So when is it that democracy turns? Uh, tyrannical, uh, oppressive, uh, despotic, and, and what happens uh, uh, then. Uh, I did do some work on, on ochlocracy, which is the degeneration of democracy. So I'm going to, I am toying with the idea of working on the tyrannical, despotic aspect of democracy, not just in the early, in the early, early modern period, but trying to uh, trespass onto uh, uh, new new territories like the 18th, 19th century, and maybe work on this idea of uh, a clocacy uh, in the long term. Okay, thank you. We will look forward to that. And I do hope that I will have the chance again to speak with you when, when this is ready. It's been an enormous pleasure, such a great discussion. And uh, your book, Anti-Democracy in England, 1570 to 1642, with Oxford University Press, is available. So I encourage our listeners to um, to purchase and read this book, because this is yeah, just, uh, I'm sure, just the tip of the iceberg of all the wonderful content in there. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, Cesare. Thank you very much, Monica. Okay, and I do hope we speak again. Thank you so Likewise. much. Thank you.